Alan, this machine is still running. Do you, is this still supposed to be on? I got a red and a green and a blue light staring me right in the face. Thank you, Art. I was going to come and bring you instruction this morning on the armor of God. However, in the midst of my study, I fell upon a word. The word is stand, and it's repeated four times in the context of three verses. And I took note of that word, and I said, my. There must be something significant about this idea, this word stand. And so I was distracted from, this, from the armor of God and began to look at that word and study it. And hence, you're going to receive the fruit of my weeks of study. Next week, Lord willing, we'll start the armor. I want you to read with me from verse 10 of chapter 6. Let's read a couple verses. Paul writes, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand. Notice that word, underline it. You can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you have done everything, to stand. And then in verse 14, he says, Stand firm then. Now this is significant, I think. Having been told in verse 10 to be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power, we are then told in the next verse to Put on the whole armor of God. We'll study that, or at least begin to study that next week. So that we can take our stand. The first occurrence of that word in verse 11. Against the devil's schemes. And we studied the devil's schemes last week. Certainly not exhaustively, but obviously representatively, substantially in many ways. So that we not be unawares of the schemes of the devil. And again in verse 13, he says, stand your ground. Stand your ground against all the things that are likely to meet you, and particularly in the day of evil. Now, ever since the fall of man, recorded in Genesis 3, when man fell from a state of perfection to a state of imperfection, ever since that day, every day is evil. But some days are more evil than others, are they not? I mean, some days you wake up in the morning, I mean, you can feel it in the air. It is not going to be a good day. <laughs> I mean, some days are better than others, right? But they're all still evil. But he says what? That we might stand in the evil day or when the day of evil comes. You know, some believers have done everything well in the Lord's work. But they do not continue to stand firm. The issue here, as Paul is talking to us, is not what a believer has done. And sometimes I think we have a tendency to rely on past glories, past victories, and so forth. It's not what a believer has done. It's not what a Christian has done. The issue is this, is that when the battle is over, when the smoke clears, where is the believer? 
Is he standing firm and true to the Lord? The onslaught is great. The opposition can be awesome. The temptation to flee, horrendous. But when it's all said and done, when the battle's over, the smoke clears, where are you? Are you standing? I mean, you may be bent over. You may be bruised. You may be beat up. You may be scarred. But are you still standing? That's the issue. Let me read to you Paul's sentiment out of 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 8 and 9. I love this passage of scripture. It is so heartening and so encouraging. Paul writes, he says, we are hard pressed on every side, but not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. We are persecuted, but not abandoned. Struck down, but not destroyed. There's tremendous opposition. I remember Paul in Lystra after being beat up and dragged in and left outside the city. Left for dead. And his cohorts finally come and they gather him up and they're able to revive him. Restore him to some measure of consciousness. And you would think that Paul would want to run, hide. He says, no. The very thing, after they revive him, he says, we're going back in the city. We're going back in the city. He reflects that sentiment that we're persecuted, but we're not abandoned, we're struck down, but we're not destroyed. We're going to still stand. It's not what we've done in the past. What are you doing today? What are you doing today? Are you standing today? That's the issue. And then again in verse 14 in our passage in Ephesians, Paul says to us, stand firm then. Stand firm. Be a hero of the faith. Stand firm. So in the immediate context in these verses we've just read in Ephesians, we have this exhortation to stand, and it's repeated four times. Do you think it's significant? you think Paul means for us to gain something? you think God is trying to get a message through? He's having done everything. Stand. Stand firm then. You see, the order for the day for the Christian, if you're in the military, there's an order for the day. The order for the day today for you as a Christian is to what? Stand. That's the order of the day. And indeed, we're in the military. Do you know that? Amen. You're in God's army. Amen. You're not just born again. You're not just a saint. You're not just a child of God. You're not precious to him only. But you're a soldier in the army of the Lord. Amen. Sometimes I think we lose sight of that fact. And the order for the day for us who are in the military are to stand. We are soldiers of God locked in a mortal combat with a cunning, deceptive, crafty, murderous enemy. We looked last week again at some of his schemes. We see how deceptive and how crafty and cunning he is. But he's also murderous. He's also murderous and he's looking to take you or I out. He's looking to end our life. He is called the murderer. I lost a friend this week. Tragic, from my point of view. Some of you knew him, Mike McGann. He was a National Guard pilot. Loved the Lord, a man of integrity, of strength, of character. Last Sunday morning, just at the 930 service, he was there with his daughter, and I saw him, came in, hugged each other, and 
loved each other up and smiled and praised God for each other. He was in my, he was in my office the week before. Spent time together. It was a great challenge to his life, great challenge to his faith. He was fighting hard, and he was tempted to flee. And he came, and he said, what should I do? I said, stand. And we prayed, and we talked. We worshiped. We wept together as I tried to encourage him. Great pressure and opposition. And then last Thursday, he flew an F-4 Phantom jet right into a mountain. I found out Thursday afternoon. I got a report. I can't hardly get over it. Satan, if he can, will try to take us out. He's a murderer. He's a thief. He's a robber. We need to understand the battle that we're in. We need to understand something of the foe that opposes us and the seriousness of the warfare. The world outside isn't interested in Christianity, is it? By and large, they're not beating down the doors to get in here. They're not wearing a path to the door of the church. They're not interested in Christianity. And I think that it probably has something to do with their view of the church. I think that they think that Christianity is something merely that's just sentimental or sloppy or spineless. The Christians, by and large, are wimps. They're irrelevant. The church is irrelevant. It doesn't make any difference. Who cares? Oh, it's nice, and it's nice to go to church, and most people were raised in some kind of Sunday school, some kind of religious environment, but it hasn't made a difference. It's, it's irrelevant. And the world doesn't view the church as being a significant entity in the midst of the warfare that's going on because the world doesn't see the warfare. I wonder sometimes if the way we live our lives doesn't contribute or doesn't say that there's some truth in the world's criticism that the church is soft, sentimental, sloppy, and in some measure spineless, lacks courage. Are we guilty? Are we guilty of a kind of soft and sloppy insipidness that is a, an utter misrepresentation of the truth of the gospel, the truth of Christianity? I think in some cases we are. I am. And if I am, I know that many others are. Are we content to live the Christian life in a lethargic way, indifferent, in a perfect satisfaction with things the way they are? Many people are. You know, there's a you know the great 80-20 rule? The 80-20 rule fits most, most groups. 80-20 says 80% of the work is done by 20% of the people. And only under great duress will most people move out of the great silent majority and get involved. Under, only under great duress. When they absolutely have to. When there's no other way. And sadly, the 80-20 rule has affected the church historically. There have been few times when there's been great revival and great movement in the church when the vast majority of the church have flip-flopped the rule. It's easy for believers today, especially in our own Western culture, it's easy for believers 
where the church is relatively prosperous, not really persecuted, pretty secure, it's easy for believers to be complacent and oblivious to the seriousness of the battle going on around them. Did you wake up this morning acutely aware of the spiritual warfare going on around you? Did you wake up this morning acutely aware that the enemy is out to destroy you? Did you grow up or wake up this morning acutely aware if you're a parent, if you're a dad, that the enemy is arrayed against your family, wants to take your wife out and your children? Did you wake up this morning praying for your family, God's grace and protection and strength? Do you go out throughout the day and you have eyes, spiritual eyes, to see the warfare that's going on in other people's lives? Is you, are you a person who is learning to pray continuously? Why? Because you're no longer willing to be oblivious to the warfare going on around us, the spiritual warfare. This is real, folks. We're not talking about a game. This is not mythological. This is no, this is no imaginary thing. This is real stuff. People are dying every day. People are grief-stricken every day. There's all kinds of problems going on. And people say, well, why doesn't God do something if there's a God? He has done something. Amen. And he's put it into our hands, the responsibility to press on with the work, to get involved in the warfare. His church. We rejoice in victories that involve no real battles at all. Little skirmishes, little insignificant events that we think, woo, hallelujah, God found my car keys. <laughs> well, I believe God's interested in the small things, but I'm talking to you about the, the significant warfare that's going on in people's lives. We rejoice in the kind of peace that is merely the absence of conflict. I'm not getting involved. Boy, I get involved and I just know what's going to happen. It's going to take up my day. It's going to occupy my time. It's going to inconvenience me. There's going to be opposition. I'm going to have problems. Oh, all sorts of, no way do I want to get involved. And sure, you have peace in your life. But you have peace in your life because there is no conflict. And I know better than anybody that conflict is not one of our favorite things. I mean, I don't like to open my presents on Christmas morning and see conflict. Man, you can smell conflict on the horizon, can't you? You know when it's there. Husbands know all about that. They're insensitive to their wives. The wives get a little cold, a little distant, and are communicating something. The husband knows what's going on, but he's ignoring it. You know, he goes, slips off into denial. And he goes off to work pretending like everything's okay, hoping that it'll blow over by the time he gets home and she'll be hunky-dory. She'll have recouped herself. He gets home. And she's not recouped herself. And man, he's driving home and he just knows it. He can feel it in the air. Man, conflict is coming. I'm in trouble. It's not one of his favorite things. He wants to run, but he knows he's got to go home. <laughs> Some of you guys are smiling. You know what I'm talking about. Conflict! Is your life full of peace because there's no conflict? You're not involved in the battle? Or is your life full of peace because you're involved in the battle and you're winning and you're getting victory and you're excited? Amen. And it's God's peace. Too many times ours is the victory or ours is the peace of the draft dodger or the defector. 
who refuses to fight, refuses to even engage the battle. Oh, don't disturb my peace. Don't disturb my life. I'm just real happy now. Don't upset my apple cart. I'm just working. I'm just trying to get through this life. And as soon as I can retire, I'm going to move off to Oregon or someplace where no one will bug me. God, that just, that kills me. Retirement. I want to die preaching the gospel. I want to be up here preaching the gospel. All of a sudden, man, my heart goes. Don't you dare pray that I raise from the dead. But we rejoice in that kind of victory. We rejoice in that kind of peace that, that comes from no involvement. And therefore, there's no need to be strong in the Lord. There's no need to put on his armor. Because in reality, there's no real intent to get involved in the battle. I'm just going to stay on the sidelines. I'm just going to watch while you do it. No real intention to stand against the enemy. Someone said, is that, is that kind of person really saved? You know, because always salvation is the issue, you know. How, how much can I get away with not doing and still be saved? You know what I'm talking about? Oh, will I still be saved? I mean, as important as that issue obviously is, that's not the question we're dealing with. Probably that person is saved if they've made a genuine profession of faith. But if we don't fight the good fight of faith, as Paul urges Timothy to involve himself in, there is a great cost. There is a terrible price that's still paid. It may not be salvation. But it comes in the person, comes in the context of these other kinds of things. One, we don't bring joy to the Lord. We bring grief to him. It's possible to grieve the Holy Spirit of God by our unwillingness to be involved. We don't bring him joy. Does that mean he doesn't love us anymore? No, he loves us. He loves us. I mean, you can be a parent of a child. You always love your child, but you sometimes, boy, you're grieved. Doesn't diminish your love, but you're just grieved in your heart. Your child isn't bringing you joy. Same way with God in our relationship with him. You make him miserable, we get miserable. God ever talked to you? You know, he's called you to be involved, called you to do something, and you just keep digging your heels in, kicking against the goads, and pretty soon you're pretty miserable, aren't you? You're not full of joy. You're miserable. And not only are you miserable, but the people who are around you are miserable because you're miserable. You ever been around a miserable person? <laughs> Miserableness is catchy. But not only that, if we're not involved in fighting the good fight of faith, we're not willing to be involved in the conflict. We leave lost souls in the darkness, lost souls damned to hell, instead of bringing them to the light of salvation. You say, well, I thought that was God's job. It is, but he chooses to work through the church. Well, can't he just sovereignly save people? Sure, and sometimes he does, but that is not the norm. The norm is to work through the church. There's always this big complaint. Well, why doesn't God do something? He has done something. He's, a, he's opened the way. He sent his son to the cross. He died for mankind's sin. He set the stage. Now he says, church, go out and bring them in. Yes, amen. But because the church is unwilling, what do we pray week after week after week? We didn't get a chance to pray this morning, but you'll pray it for yourself. God, the harvest is still plentiful, and the workers are still few. Send workers into the harvest. Amen? Amen. 
But if we're not willing to get involved, and if we're not willing to risk, risk being joked at, laughed at, persecuted, ridiculed, if we're, if we're still remaining safe, comfortable, souls are going to remain in hell. It's our responsibility. Paul writes in Corinthians, he tells the Corinthians, he says, I am guiltless of your blood. The prophet Ezekiel talks about the watchman who's been called to warn those who are perishing. And that if, he's, if he does his job, if he warns them, then he is not to be held guilty for their blood. This is heavy duty stuff, folks. The cost also includes the reality that we'll see our own work burned up with fire. And generally, most often, our work amounts to wood, hay, and stubble. And when it's all burned up and nothing remains, we forfeit the reward that faithful service brings. Stand, he says. And against whom are we standing? When he describes in, this, in verse 13 these various arenas of enemies, he's not talking about worldly enemies. He's not talking about world rulers and world authorities. He's talking about spiritual power, spiritual beings. We're standing against Satan, the devil himself. There is a personal devil. But not only against him are we taking a stand, but we're taking a stand also against a vast army of demonic beings who serve him, who are subordinate to him, and make up his evil supernatural realm. The Bible says that when the great dragon fell, was cast out of heaven, that with his tail he swept a third of the stars of heaven with him. Most scholars think that's a reference to the balance of the demonic realm. The third of the angels fell with Satan and became demons. How many stars are there in the, in the heavens? You can't count them. It's almost infinite. Well, then how many angels are there? The same number as there are stars. A third of them are demonic. Our greatest enemy is not the world that we see as evil and corrupt as it is. Our greatest enemy, beloved, is the world that we do not see. We need constant reminder of that reality. That's our enemy. The demonic categories that he points out in verse 13, he doesn't explain them. But apparently there are different rankings of demons in this empire of Satan. Human beings who promote godless, pagan, immoral, occultic practices and programs, they're but just dupes of Satan and his demons. They're pawns. They're blind. They don't know what's going on. They have no clue. You try to explain this to them and say, oh, go on, get out of here. Some of you this morning are not believers and you're hearing what I'm saying and you're going, no way, I don't believe this. This is all superstition. No, it's not. This is very, very real. You are trapped by sin. If you're an unbeliever, into unwittingly helping the devil fulfill his evil schemes. You're trapped. The rulers and the authorities that Paul speaks about, no doubt, reflect high orders of demonic beings. Rulers and authorities. Probably, they have rule and authority over vast realms, over cities and nations, territories. 
They're authorities. They have delegated authority from the devil himself. The powers of this dark world that Paul refers to. He's not talking about worldly powers. He's probably talking about demons who infiltrate various governmental systems, secular and religious. Infiltrating, trying to influence and model them after Satan's own design for destructive purposes. The spiritual forces of evil that he talks about are probably those demons who are involved in the most evil, vile immoralities and perversions, things that are detestable, things that are unmentionable. Paul uses that word in Romans in chapter 1. Shameful things, unmentionable things, things that are ghastly. And there are demons who are permeating society, societies, degrading man, leading him into practices, into patterns of thinking and behaving that are absolutely, utterly degrading and destructive. The spiritual forces of evil. Our responsibility is to resist and to stand. Our responsibility is to risk, to hold the line, to stand firm against the schemes of the devil, against the realm of darkness. Therefore, it's important for us to understand the content and the force of that one word, stand. What does Paul mean when he says stand? What does that one word mean? As I studied this week, as I thought about it, as I meditated on it, God gave me some insight, and I want to share these insights with you. Six little facets, six perspectives on that word stand. Its first suggestion for us is that we not be surprised, we not be taken unaware, we not be unhappy when we discover that the Christian life is a warfare. Beloved church, the Christian life is not a honeymoon. Now, the first few days are, the first few weeks are, the first couple months. It's wonderful. Everything's glowing. You're all excited. You got your brand new Bible. You're reading it. You're in Bible study and fellowship. Everybody's friendly. Everything's going wonderful. <laughs> it's just like a marriage. First couple months are beautiful. Oh, it's wonderful. And you see those newlyweds. They come up the stairs. They say, ooh, it's wonderful. Ooh, it's so wonderful. And you smile knowingly and approvingly. In the back of your mind, you're thinking, oh, God, strengthen them. <laughs> the Christian life is not a honeymoon. It's warfare. Jesus was constantly involved in warfare. You read the Gospels. You watch his life. He was constantly, constantly attacked. A man who went about doing good, constantly attacked. It's paradoxical. Why? Because there's this demonic realm attacking. We are the body of Christ now in the world. As we live out our life, what, what, was, what went for Jesus goes for us. That's what he said. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12. Peter says, don't be surprised when these things come upon you. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12. Timothy says, anyone who seeks to live a godly life will suffer persecution. We'll have trials. We'll have difficulties. Nothing is more important for us as Christians than that we should recognize the inevitability of trials, the inevitability of troubles and conflicts in this life because of sin 
and because of the influence of the devil. These things are inevitable. And as inevitable as suffering may be for us as Christians, beloved church, misery is not inevitable. I mean, we're going we're gonna to be attacked. We're going to have to deal with those things. But you don't have to be miserable in the midst of them. We can be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Romans chapter 12, because we know that our God is for us. You don't have to be miserable. Things are going to come, boy, you're going to get attacked, especially when you start stepping out, you start getting involved, you start taking a stand. You've got to know it is a given. It is inevitable, but you don't have to be miserable. You can rejoice. You can experience the joy of the Lord as you stand strong in his strength. We can't let ourselves become discouraged. You can't let yourself become discouraged. You cannot allow yourself to suck your thumb. You can't start feeling sorry for yourself when you're undergoing persecution and trials and suffering. The temptation is to do that. You can't allow yourself to start accusing God of being somehow absent, insensitive, Because all those things lead inevitably to spiritual paralysis, lethargy, and defeat. Every single time. We've got to stand firm. It's tough, but I'm not going to be discouraged. It's difficult, but I'm not giving up. So as Christians, we are to expect... More difficulties, more opposition than other people, especially non-believers. Non-believers are already safely tucked away in Satan's camp. I mean, he's not going to attack them. He doesn't need to. He's got them already blinded. Who's he coming after? He's coming after you and I who are a threat to those people in terms of bringing them out. Secondly, not only should we not be surprised, we should not be frightened. We shouldn't be frightened when faced with overwhelming circumstances, threatening kinds of things to us. Don't be frightened. A frightened man's not going to stand. A frightened man's going to run. He's going to bail. He's going to quit. He's going to turn his back. We have God's power. We have God's armor. And as we stand firm, as we resist, unafraid, confident in God and in his resources, the devil will flee. I guarantee it. How can I guarantee that? Because the scriptures say it. You stand there, man, he'll beat on you. He's going to pound on that armor. He's going to look for a chink in that armor. You stand strong in the strength of the Lord, praising God, rejoicing, filled with the Holy Ghost, with the armor of God on. He's going to pound away, pound away, try to wear you down. You stand firm, you stand firm, and he's going to throw his hands up and leave. He's I can't get through. I can't get through. Get that, get that flag up in the air. Glory to God. Wave that banner. Hallelujah. He will flee. Like the coward that he is. Because he can't get through. You stood firm. You stood firm. He beat on you. He beat on you. The smoke clears and you are still standing. Whenever we are frightened, we're already defeated. We're already defeated. 
Fear not, the scriptures say over and over and over. Let me read to you out of Joshua chapter 1. <sighs> Great passage. Joshua chapter 1, verse 6. You know the scenario. Joshua was getting ready to lead the, the Israelites in to take over the promised land. They're going to take Jericho, first, the first foe. Incredible city. Impregnable. Impregnable. Its defenses are awesome. The walls themselves are amazing. And it's interesting the walls fall. <laughs> but listen to what God says to Joshua. Chapter 1 of Joshua, verse 6, he says, Be strong and courageous. In verse 7, he says, Be strong and very courageous. In verse 9, he says, Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be terrified. Do not be discouraged. For the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. Woo, man, if God is for me, who then can be against me? Who can possibly stand against me? Not the powers of hell themselves are going to be able to stand when I'm standing with God. David in Psalm 23, verse 4 says, I will fear no evil. Why does David say that? He says, for you are with me. He's confident. He's not going to fear any evil. In Psalm 91, verse 5, the psalmist says there, You will not fear the terror at night. Why? Because he goes on and says, For the Lord is your refuge. Isaiah chapter 35, verse 4, he says, Isaiah challenges us and he says, Be strong and do not fear, for the Lord will come to save you. The cavalry will come riding in. <laughs> I used to love his, yeah, glory, get that thing up in there. <laughs> Gotta be quicker, Alan. <laughs> get that, have that thing out, man. Realize who you are. Who are we? Who are we? Paul, oh, you sound so excited. Amen, hallelujah. Who are we? It's exciting. Think about that. The, the living God who spoke the universe into existence. We're his children. We're the object of his redemptive love and power and grace. He has reached down and he saved us. He loves us. He loves us in spite of ourselves. He knows us best of all. He loves us warts and all. We are beautiful children of God. We've got to realize who we are. We've got to realize the resources that we have access to. Draw on his strength. Put on his armor. And stand. Don't quake. Don't shake. Stand. Don't quiver. Paul writes in Philippians chapter 1, verse 28. He says, don't be frightened in any way by those who oppose you. Don't be frightened in any way by those who oppose you. Now, I confess to you, in and of myself, I am helpless. In and of myself, I am weak. In and of myself, I am an utter wimp. I'm a wet noodle. I'm a flake. I'm a piece of cake. I'm made out of sugar. I melt in the rain. In and of myself. But I'm in Christ. I'm in Christ. 
And the Bible says that those who are in Christ are more than conquerors. Those who are in Christ are more than conquerors. If you remember your Greek from Romans chapter 8, we are Hooper Nikomen. Super Nikes. And I'm not talking about the tennis shoe either. We're super Nike missiles. We are powerful, man. We're dangerous. You got to see yourself as dangerous. You're dangerous. You walk down, you're filled with the Holy Ghost. You walk into a hospital, you walk down the street, man, demons go. You get eyes to see. Demons flee. When you're moving in the power of the Spirit, when you're filled with the power of God, you got His armor on, man, demons just are going to flee. You're dangerous. You're super Nike. Therefore, when depressing thoughts come, when the devil tries to terrorize as a roaring lion, let us remember the exhortation to... Stand. Let us remember the exhortation to... Stand. Let us remember the exhortation to... Stand. Man, we're not giving ground. <laughs> Golly! Do you believe this stuff? Amen. I hope so. I'm preaching my heart out, and I hope it's making a difference. We must not allow him to frighten us. We must not allow him to frighten us. First John chapter 5, verses 18 and 19. John writes this, The whole world is under the power of the evil one, but he cannot touch us. He cannot touch us. If you're filled with the power of the Holy Ghost. Can't touch it. Don't let him in. Colossians chapter 1, verse 13. We have been rescued from the domain of darkness. We've been transferred to the kingdom of God's Son, whom He loves. Beloved church, we must remember, He can roar. He can roar. He cannot touch us. Let Him roar. Don't be afraid. Stand. All right. <laughs> you guys are finally cooking. It's only taken five services. <laughs> I said, now, Alan, now. Oh, oh yeah. <laughs> Glory. Third, we must not be half-hearted. We must not be uncertain. We're having a good time. We're laughing. We're fellowshipping. God's great. We're, but you've got to understand the battle is real. And we cannot be half-hearted. We cannot be uncertain about it. No half in, no half out. No being tossed about on the sea of double-mindedness. Firm in our faith, convinced. When you get up in the morning, you know warfare is going on. You know it's there. I get up in the morning before I leave my house. I take my wife and my son. I pray for him. I say, oh, God, protect him. Keep your hands of grace upon him. Lord, bless my wife. Bless my son today. I don't leave the house a day ever without praying for them. And then during the day, I'll call my wife. If I don't call her, she calls me. And I'll say, how's it going? How's it going? She says, it's going fine. I said, praise the Lord. She says, uh-huh, amen. <laughs> I'm not uncertain about what I'm involved in. I'm in a life and death struggle for people's eternal destiny. I'm not uncertain. I'm not uncertain of why I'm a member of the church. Why are you a member of the church? Why are you in the church? Why are you even here this morning? A lot of people are uncertain of why they're in the church. 
You ever join an athletic team? Anybody join an athletic team? You know what I'm talking about? Why'd you join the athletic team? Because you wanted to play. You wanted to get in the game, right? You wanted to score a touchdown. You wanted to hit the run. You wanted to get the cross first home play. Whatever. You wanted to play the ball game. But more than all, you wanted to win. You wanted to win. You didn't just, just look at the, at, the, at the team out on the field and see those nice uniforms and say, ooh, I want to wear one of those uniforms. <laughs> Some people do, though, you know. Some people are all enamored with this, the, the uniform. They say, ooh, that's, that's cute. That's, that's groovy. I'd like to wear one of those. <laughs> you're a Christian. You've got to understand why you're in the church. You're here to be equipped, challenged, strengthened, blessed, filled. You can get back out there and do warfare. You're not here just to wear the uniform, sit in the dugout, look cool. You've got to be understanding what's going on. If Christianity is a task for you, if you have to force yourself to worship God, you're already defeated. You're already defeated. If you're just doing the minimum, that's a confession that you're not standing. You're just playing it safe. You're a draft dodger. You're half-hearted and you're divided. Do we always have to be held up by other people? Always? No. Sometimes we think we do. We look at ourselves, we don't see the victory, we don't see the potential, we don't see the power of God, we don't know it, we don't understand it. We always feel like we always have to be held up by other people. Sooner or later is the point at which we've got to say, come on, get on with it. Get on with it. But I'm not ready. Yes, you are. I'm not ready. Yes, you are. Someone's saying right now, he doesn't sound very compassionate. I'm very compassionate. But I understand reality. There's a time when my little boy's got to learn to stand on his own two feet. He's got to get on with it. And the same with people in church. We don't always need to be propped up by each other. Certainly we need to encourage them along the way. There's times when we need to be propped up. But not always. Because then that's just a testimony that we're defeated and we're half-hearted. We're not certain about what it's all about. Stand up. Realize you're a child of God. The world and the flesh, the devil are arrayed against us. Rise up in the strength of the Lord. Put on his armor and stand. Fourthly, there's no retreating. There's no retreating. Let me say that again. There's no retreating. There are no back doors in the Christian life. Well, that's awful rigid. Yes, it is. There are no back doors in the Christian. The world is full of back doors. The world is full of quitters. And sadly, that quitting mentality has pervaded the church too much. Don't quit your marriage. Don't quit your commitment to serve. You volunteered to minister with kids for a year. You serve faithfully for that year. Let your yes be yes. No quitting. Well, it's difficult. You don't understand my circumstances. It's so hard. I understand your circumstances better than you think I understand them. You just don't understand God's resources. You bend your knee. You spend 40 days in prayer and fasting. Then you come back and you tell me God isn't there. And his strength isn't available to you. No retreat. No quitting. Think about your commitments. And by the way, in this arena, be careful about looking at yourself too much. Last week I shared with you, I think, you know, we're not built for introspection. Do you know that? 
Now, I'm not saying that we shouldn't evaluate, look at our lives, and so forth, but don't do it too much. Sometimes we focus on ourselves too much, or sometimes we focus on one another. I don't know about you, but when I start looking at myself too much, I get depressed. I start looking at you too much, I get depressed. Now, I don't mean to be insulting, but that's just reality, man. I look around and say, oh, Lord, man, this is, a, this is tough. It's like pulling teeth sometimes. And it's depressing. So I don't look at you guys too much. And I don't look at me too much either. I try to keep my eyes on Jesus. Because if I keep my eyes on you, if I keep my eyes on me, I get depressed. I get depressed. I want to quit. You want to quit? I want to quit. Let's all quit. Let's go home. No, we're going to stand. Get that thing up in here. <laughs> Hallelujah. Let's not spend too much time holding each other's hands. Let's not spend too much time holding each other's hands. Let's say, come on, let's get on with it. Turn to your neighbor and say, let's get on with it. All right, hallelujah. Don't think about retreating when things look bad. Don't think about quitting and giving up when things look desperate. You only dig your heels in, you stand firmer. The more impossible your circumstances, the greater your faith the stronger your faith becomes giving glory to God. Amen? Amen. Fifthly, be alert. This idea of standing means be alert. Be alert. Be awake. Be aware. Look at what's going on. Look around you. Well, I was trying to teach my son, be alert. Watch it. Look at what's going around. Be sensitive to what's going on around you. Not only temporally, but also spiritually. Have your eyes open. And don't be confused or muddled by every wind of doctrine. Don't be running here and there saying, Woo, they're tickling my ears over there. Woo, they're tickling my ears over there. Woo, they're doing this over there. Woo, they're doing this over there. No! That's a tactic of the devil to divide the church, get people all tintillated, and they don't learn a darn thing, and they don't involve themselves in any significant committed warfare. Don't be muddled. Be on the alert. It'll be vigilant like a sentry on duty. Not dozing, not napping, not falling asleep. <laughs> Man, I tell you, you can't afford to relax. You cannot afford to relax. He's looking for an opportunity to get in there. And if you relax, you're for sure going to fall asleep. We have a subtle foe, and he can attack from any direction any direction. You're a sentry going, I know he's out there, <laughs> but I'm not afraid. I just know he's out there. I'm watching. <laughs> and then when you hear the rustling in the bushes, when you know the enemy's starting to show, and you call on the captain of the host. He said, Lord God, send your angels as I stand firm. <laughs> Hallelujah. <laughs> you get that thing out there? Be alert. Be alert. Don't relax for a moment, but always be on alert, ready, in season, and out. And finally, realize the privilege. Realize the privilege of being in such a fight. It's a privilege. Don't just stand, but stand proudly. Stand proudly. Growing up, I always liked to look at those the Marine recruiting posters. And I, I always like to go wherever I could 
just walk into a, a marine recruiting office and, and look at that guy. Boy, I, I just amazed. These guys are just, the uniform is sharp, the saber, you know. <laughs> These guys are proud. Marine. I always like to watch old war movies when they, when they show the, the British, you know, the stiff upper lip and pip pip and cheerio. And <laughs> for the king, for the empire, press on. <laughs> At least that's the way it is in the movies. I don't know if that was in real life. But. Man, I love that stuff. These people are proud to be in the warfare. They understand who they are. They understand who they represent. They're not just standing. They're standing proudly. The cause of God is something worth standing for. The cause of God is something worth standing for. Paul again says to Timothy, it is the good fight of faith. It is the good fight of faith. And if that doesn't make us stand, what will? What will? Think of the king. Think of the kingdom. Think of the cause. Hallelujah. We're not fighting some little personal skirmish, some little brush fire. We're fighting God's war, his battles, with his strength and his armor. Think of David against Goliath. Think of David against Goliath. 1 Samuel chapter 17. Listen to this. Here's David, a, a little shepherd boy. Not even old enough to be in the army. His, all, all of his older brothers are already in the army. They're off, and, and they're at the front of the battle, and, and they're confronted by the Philistines, and the Philistines have held them off for 40 days, and the Israel army is knees a knock and scared to death. And for 40 days, this giant of a man named Goliath has come out and defied the armies of Israel, challenged them, mocked them, and mocked their God. And word hasn't come yet back to, to town, and so... David's father, Jesse, says to him, he says, I want you to take some food out to your brothers and find out how it's going at the front. David leaves the flocks, takes the food, gets out to the front, finds out that the Philistines have withstood them for some time now, and the, the whole Israel army is scared to death. He says, what's the matter? Well, that guy out there, that big guy. <laughs> what big guy? Well, that guy. He's been out there for 40 days. He's been yelling at us and screaming at us. We're scared to death. Never, no one's brave enough to go out there. Everybody's saying, well, you go. No, no, you go. No, you go. <laughs> David says, I'll go. And they say, oh, you're just a kid. Get out of here. Well, finally, no one's going to go. And they say, well, all right, go. <laughs> At least somebody get out there. You know the story. He puts on Saul's armor. It's not going to fit. and He can't move around in it. You're watching this on television, but you don't know the outcome. You're seeing this huge, giant monster of a man challenging. The Israelite army is just a bunch of wimps over here. The Philistines are waiting. Yeah, just someone come out. And all of a sudden, you see this little shepherd guy come out with a couple rocks and a sling. And you're going, oh, no, this guy's going to get wiped out. <laughs> oh, couldn't they do better than this? Listen to this. Verse 45. David said to that uncircumcised Philistine. <laughs> to love it. David said to the Philistine, you come against me with sword and spear and javelin, 
But I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. Man, that sends a chill right up my back every time I read that. I come against you in the name of the Almighty God. And, you know, you're still watching this on television. You still don't know the outcome. And you're going, oh, man, that guy is really going to get it now. (laughs) Just shut his mouth. Doesn't the enemy say that to you? And when you get out there and he's saying, come on, step out by faith. Come on, let us whack you down. God isn't going to be there. You're going to get let down. And we just knock our knees and back away. Not David. No way. David said, this day, this day, the Lord will hand you over to me and I'll strike you down and cut off your stinking head. (laughs) That's a little editorial comment. (laughs) Today I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds of the air and the beasts of the earth and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. And all those gathered here will gathered here will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves for the battle is the Lord's and he will give all of you into our hands today think of the king think of the cause think of the kingdom think of David against Goliath Paul writes in Philippians chapter 1 verse 27 he says whatever happens Whatever happens, conduct yourselves worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Then, he says, whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit. Holding the line, everyone standing alert, nobody slouching, Nobody retreating. Stand firm. Do you know that there's rejoicing in heaven when one sinner repents? Conversely, did you know that there's rejoicing in hell when any child of God falls or quits or fails to stand? There's rejoicing in hell. The demons are gleeful. There's a chink in the wall. There's an avenue to get through an attack. Think with you, will you, of the crown of glory that awaits for us. Let me close with this. Paul writes in 2 Timothy chapter 4, the crown of glory. He says, for I am already being poured out like a drink offering, and the time has come for my departure. He's going to lose his head pretty soon. He says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race and I have kept the faith. I have stood. And now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing, also to all, all those who have persevered, who have stood when the battle was over, when the smoke cleared, those who stood. Beloved church, there is a day coming, if I can use that term in the context of eternity, there is a day coming when the Lord himself, from him, from his own hand, you and I, if we have stood, 
we will receive the crown of righteousness, the garland to grace our head. And as he places it upon our head, he'll speak these words. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Come in and enjoy your master's happiness. What are we going to do with this? I'm a student of human nature. As hard as I might try, I know that there are many in this room this morning who these words will go in one ear and out the other. It's not going to make any difference. We had a good time. We've praised the Lord. We've laughed. We've been stimulated to one degree or another. But I know that there are many here this morning that this word isn't going to make any difference in your life. I know there are others who this word, you've been stimulated and you've said to yourself, you've made an internal kind of commitment. You've said, I'm going to do better. I'm going to stand. I'm going to stand in my marriage. I'm going to stand in my home. I'm going to stand in my workplace. I'm going to stand in my community. I'm going to make a difference. I'm not going to quit anymore. I'm not going to run away. I'm going to stand. I know there's many of you who made that commitment internally this morning, but I know also that in the next couple of days, it will fade. You'll forget it. And you'll feel miserable. But I know also there are some who this message has really spoken to your hearts. And I know that the Spirit of God, because you've been accessible to Him, is going to really make a difference. There are some of you this morning who have not been part of that small 20%, but today you will have been added so that now we have 22, 23% involvement. And I'm thrilled by that. And I look forward to the fruit being born. What are you going to do with it? When you leave here today, what are you going to do with that word stand? What are you going to do with it? Father, I pray by your spirit that you would...